you know, I've had conversations with people that are along the lines of, I would like to pursue something that I enjoy, but I don't know what that is anymore. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast, where we're all about sharing tools to build leaders in academic medicine. And I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Jennifer Vilwalk. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, how are you? Good. Now, everybody, Dr. Jennifer Vilwalk, she is an associate professor in otolaryngology at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City. And what's super cool about Jennifer is she has an amazing TED Talk called The Black Hole. Go to the YouTubes and go find her on the TED Talk, The Black Hole. I'm not going to give you spoiler alerts, but it's a really motivational, encouraging message. Just what we need to hear, what we're never, you know, it just, it's just really good. You got to really go and check it out. And I um, was put in touch with her by one of our professors here, Dr. Yuri Agarwal at Hopkins. Another good message and a pointer that if you know somebody who's got a great message and some wisdom to share and just has a heart for helping faculty members, just put a, put them our way and let's let's get the spread the good news and get that out there. So speaking of good news, Jennifer is going to share something on her pearls about wellness. So what would you like to share with us today, Jennifer? You know, I think that there's so much going on in the general topic of wellness within the medical field because we recognize that this is not something that we have historically done well for ourselves. And, you know, I think from my perspective, one of the ways that we can best serve each other in terms of our own professional development is just being more open about conversations about wellness and where we are. You know, I feel that so much of the time we're supposed to like pretend <laughs> that we know what's going on and what we're doing, you know, and, and that we're getting fulfillment from the things that we think that we're supposed to, um, when really what that does is it robs us of the opportunity to have some really deep and insightful conversations with ourselves about what we really value and then how to align our professional efforts with those things. Well, I, I like what you just said, what we really value, because that, you know, it reminds me years ago, I went to a double AMC, the Association of American Medical College. They had a um, special speaker on, it was some kind of a leadership topic. And the presenter, who was a gifted presenter, it was like a two, three day thing, had us start with this values exercise. And I'm on ENTJ for people who are in Myers-Briggs. And I'm kind of like, roll your sleeves up, get her done. Don't mess around. Let's get down to business kind of person. And he gave us, we all have these card decks to go through your values. And I was like, really? Literally, our values? I kind of, my thought bubble was, are you kidding me? Of course, we all have the same values. You know, hard work, perseverance, you know, curiosity. What's the point of this? And then once I, you know, got off my, you know, fancy pants, you know, obnoxious attitude, I realized, wow, this is really important stuff because it forced you to say, you can't have all these values, Kim. You can't have, of these 40, 50 cards, whatever, in the slide deck, in the card deck, they're not all always important to you. You can only have like 10 of them and the always important, sometimes important. And so since that time and that epiphany of me kind of realizing, you know, Kim, humble yourself, there's value in looking at values. We start a lot of our leadership programs and our early retirement career planning programs and next chapter programs with a values exercise. 
And I, I love how you start with that of we gloss over that. We don't stop to think that what are our values and how they change in seasons of our life, right? Absolutely. And I think part of that is our training paradigm, to be honest. You know, it's this mentality that, you know, you get through the hard stuff to some sort of nebulous, easy time in the future, forgetting that we live in the present, right? The easy time in the future never comes because it's always in the future. And, you know, I think that as we progress through our training, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, I'm a med student now. I just got to put my head down, suffer whatever I have to suffer, do whatever I have to do. And then things will be better when I'm a resident. And then, Fast forward a few years, you're a resident, you're still the same person because you've been doing working on all of these external things and not really anything internal about your own development. And then, you know, you see many years down the line, you know, I've had conversations with people that are along the lines of, I would like to pursue something that I enjoy, but I don't know what that is anymore. Ooh, I don't know what that is anymore. Oh my gosh, in the gut. Talk about a punch. Yeah, because we've spent so much time focusing on these external, you know, to do lists and saying, we'll sacrifice everything else for that future time when we'll have time. And then when you get to that moment, you know, you don't remember how to have fun, you know, you don't remember how to pursue things outside of, you know, the the academic or professional things that, mm. that you've been told that that's what you should value and focus on. And you no, know, you're right. It's this identity. If we we are so um enmeshed in the master status of surgeon, anesthesiologist, photolaryngologist, scientist, and that is our all-encompassing status or role that we can't envision any other self. And it's especially hard, I think, when faculty approach that next season of, all right, I'm in my creeping up on my 60s or age 70. And what is retirement? How could I retire from this? I don't know what else there is to do. I don't know who I am if I'm not that. Mm-hmm. And that is to me so, how tragic. I, I'm going to go off on a riff here and people are going to be so annoyed with me, but just for a moment, it reminds me of systems theory when I learned a, one, my first master's degree about conflict habituated couples. That's all they know. They live in this habituation of conflict. And it kind of makes me think of in academic medicine, we are habituated to this busy, busy, push, push, head down, work like crazy, sacrifice, 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 that when we're not in that space, or there's a possibility of not being in that space, we don't know how to be. We're so accustomed and attuned to thrumming at that high stress level and self-sacrificing that we don't have any space for the joy and the the living life of the real us. So I'm going to shut up. You talk more. You, you're, you're the expert here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just an expert in my own lived experience, which seems to happen to, to resonate with a lot of other folks. You know, but I think you're exactly right. And, and so much of the culture of medicine is built on kind of this this altar of sacrifice, right? You're more worthy the more you're willing to sacrifice. You know, and I think that by extension, what that means is that we turn our suffering into a competition. And it starts very early. I remember, you know, being a medical student and, you know, you're like, oh, I had to miss out on XYZ family thing so that I could study. And I spent, you know, eight hours studying on Saturday. And you're talking to someone that you would consider to be a friend and their response is, oh yeah, well, I miss this and I study for 10 hours, you know, and I think that just sets the stage for a lot of really unproductive dialogue because the conversation we should be having is not who can suffer more, but like, why are we suffering and what is the meaning and purpose 
behind it? And if the answer is, we don't know, you know, then then I think that means that, you know, we, we need to be asking different questions and not just continually trying to suffer more than, than the person next to us. You're so right, Jennifer, the cult of busy, like we've earned a badge of who can out busy someone else. It's so toxic. And all it takes is for one person to tap out. I'm not playing that game of who can get, who got the least sleep, who has, you know, not seen their children in, in years, weeks and months and years, and who is throwing themselves on the altar, like to what end, to what end. And I, I, I think it's so important that you elevate this and remind us this is not a competition. It's a, it's a cult that we should not be, want to be a member of the cult of busy, the turning our suffering into a competition. I love it. You're so right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens when, when you say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not into suffering anymore just for the sake of it. You know, it, it opens up space for some different types of conversations. You know, like so much of the time, I think we look around and we're like, I don't want this in my life. I don't want this. I don't want this. But what we don't ask ourselves is, well, what do you want instead? You know, kind of like when you look at pictures of yourself and you're like, I don't like how that looks, but you can't articulate what you would like it to look like, how how you would want it to be different. And, you know, for me, I'm currently going through some uh, coach training and one of the exercises that sounds like really silly, but it was really, I think it was really transformative for me was just going through like the thing that you do with your clients, like in one of the first meetings, which is establishing a, a wellness vision. Again, seems really silly, but I had not thought about, well, instead of focusing on what I don't want, well, what do I want? And, you know, not having gone through the exercises to really try and articulate that for myself, you know, putting some intentionality behind it was really important. And if you don't mind, I can share with you what I came up with. Oh, I would love it. Yeah. And so, you know, in my wellness vision, what I am doing is I am pursuing a life of curiosity, wonder, and continual learning and growth, contributing meaningfully to my family and community, feeling satisfied and strong in my body, not seeking escape or distraction, not easy, but more ease. Not easy, but more ease. Right. And what's not in there? Nothing about me being a surgeon, nothing Uh, about, you know, other things. Yeah, nothing (laughs) about my R01. But you know, more about, you know, who who am I at my core? Because to your point, you know, you know, I've, I don't know if I shared this with you, but you know, I was out earlier this year for several months on disability, because I had to have um, surgery on my wrist. And Mm. you know, that that takes a stab at your identity when you're a surgeon, that you're not, quote, unquote, doing anything productive, um, mm. you know, while you're not able to operate and, and serve patients, having yeah. a vision for yourself that is more who you are at your core and who you would like that core person to be, as opposed to what you can do externally, I think it is very important, especially, you know, if I think about what I'll be doing in 30 years, probably not still spending a lot of time in the OR, if we're being honest. Um, you know, I just don't think that my body's going to hold up to that for three more decades. And so how do I, you know, pivot to different career opportunities when I think about, you know, me at the age of, you know, 60, and still feel, you know, fulfilled that I'm living my life's purpose and fulfilling this wellness vision? Well, it has to be linked to who you are at your core, not just what you can do now. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for your for sharing that. I, I think it's just so beautiful, the curiosity and wonder 
And, and I know that people listening to, to you right now are like, yeah, that's why we went into academic medicine, because we are innately curious and we do have this sense of wonder. And so that doesn't mean it's not important to look at, to do scholarship and to do science and to seek leadership opportunities. That doesn't mean any of that, but it, I like how it's a reminder of grounding in rolling the tape back. Who were we as, as children? What gave us that wonder? What excited us? What, where was our natural gifting and, and remembering that, that, that freedom and that joy kind of reminding ourselves of who we are that is the unique special person and I guess taking taking those moments it's it's it, it it's really it's so difficult being in academic medicine and everybody's working so so hard and I see so many times we just lose ourselves and I I love that that reminder of the vision is again hearkening back to who I am what brings me joy how can I remind myself of who I am and my contribution and that what will carry me forward? After all, at the, you know, church or the cemetery, no one's going to be reading our CVs, mm-hmm. right? They're not going to be uh, re- handing out leaflets to everybody with, with our, our, <laughs> our curriculum vitae showing all the grants we got and all the funding and all the papers. So I'm not, again, that's important. But reminding ourselves of why we're doing what we're doing, I, I, I like that you also shared the coaching framework and, and mentality of being curious and non-judgmental and and exploring exploring who we are and helping that to even propel us further in our careers and then in our personal lives. So I think the coaching is a really nice way to um, remind us about the whole wellness umbrella. Can you tell us more about your coaching journey and how you anticipate this or how how it has helped you going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So I've I've drank the coaching Kool-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> I me think too. it tastes lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an acquired taste even. Yeah. It's just something, you know, that I think naturally resonates with me because so much of it, as you mentioned, is kind of staying curious and you know, I, I have a small child. Well, she's not so small now because it turns out kids grow up quicker than you're ready for them to. But I, I have a, 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 yeah, I have a, a eight year old and just kind of watching her grow up and watching how naturally kids explore. And when things don't go well, that doesn't mean that they're like going to stop trying new things. It just means that they learn something from that lesson, you know, keep going, see what fits next, try on a different costume or outfit and see if it resonates with you. Um, which I think is something that we don't often give ourselves that same grace as adults. We make things that happen in our lives have very strong value judgments. Like, oh, that presentation didn't go well. Guess I'm a terrible speaker and I will never try again. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. Yes, exactly. And I will never leave my room again. Um, (laughs) I'll show you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I was introduced to um, some women at uh, Case Western, actually, who are in their internal medicine department, and they run a coaching program. And I was introduced to them through way of my uh, work in imposter syndrome, which we can talk about as well, if you would like. Yeah. Um, but they run a, a wonderful coaching 
program there. So they kind of introduced me to the paradigm, which is kind of a more formalized way, you know, kind of having these conversations with your with yourself with the help of of your coach, who is not there to judge or evaluate or tell you what to do, but really create that safe, curious space to identify what are the things that are most important to you and, and relate to your core values? And what, what do you want to see for yourself in the future? And why and how do those things relate back? And how do we set goals? that are, you know, I, I cringe at the acronyms too, because I feel like I was forced to memorize so many meaningless acronyms <laughs> in my training, you know, but how do we set goals that, you know, are actionable and measurable and that are doable so that we can set a track record of success, you know, on our journey to this person that we'd like to be, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is in and of itself a continual evolution. And so after I started sipping the, the coaching Kool-Aid, I decided, okay, I'm ready for you know, a big 32 ounce glass of it. <laughs> so uh-huh. I started um, participating in um, one of the several accredited and uh, recognized kind of coach uh, training programs. And the one that I did, my cohort was specific for coaching other um, physicians and, and healthcare professionals, because it is kind of a unique need. And it can be helpful to know that the person you're interacting with can understand you know, and can relate to the unique um, struggles or issues that are occurring within that realm. Perfect. And so it's been very transformational, even just like the practice coaching sessions, which seem really like the role play that I always hated in mm-hmm. medical school. <laughs> but, yes, you know, yes. I think it, it's much more real, I think, when you're with other people that are very interested in, in the coaching journey and becoming coaches and, and helping people. One example, when we think about, well, what what are goals that are important to set to, to you know, set this track record of success. They don't have to be big goals. Like, mm-hmm. and sometimes, and they don't have to be professionally related. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be like getting this R01 grant, right? right? Maybe what's creating dis-ease for you is that my example was I wanted to stop eating dessert every night after dinner. But it was hard for me to like come up with a reason why other than making it an exercise in self-discipline because, you know, I'm not overweight. My cholesterol is great. All of my biometrics are wonderful. So why am I doing this? And after a couple of sessions with um, one of the other coaches in training, what we identified is that the need that wasn't being met for me was the need to be intentional and to connect my actions to meaning. And so what we decided together was, well, it sounds like what would be more helpful for me would be to set a goal to only eat the dessert when it's meaningful. Because my husband is like an endurance athlete, so he has to eat dessert to get enough calories, <laughs> to get enough calories. And I am not an endurance athlete, so I don't have that need. Poor guy. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the goal that I set for myself was to eat dessert when it was meaningful. So I'm not depriving myself just for the sake of it to to say that I can. But if it's something that like I created with my daughter or it was a new recipe that we tried, then I'm going to eat it and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm not going to have any guilt about it. And then the other times when it's just kind of this reflex thing, I'm going to opt out because it doesn't have any meaning. It's just routine. And it's my Mm. husband's routine. It's not even my routine. Mm. And, you know, after not having success, trying to just practice the self-discipline route, you know, connecting it to that meaning and then being able to see like, you know what, not only did I achieve that goal, I didn't feel deprived, kind of like revolutionized, like my whole win, week. Win, 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 win. Dr. Jennifer Billwalk. Listen, are you hearing what she's saying? This is brilliant. I love how you turned something that's very 
commonplace that millions and millions of people around the world would have goals like that to get healthy, to lose weight, to get fit, to get or do or become whatever. And how through coaching, there was an aha awareness of it's not about that. It's rather shift, recalibrate. It's about intentionality. Oh, so that is a beautiful example of engaging in a co-thinking exercise where it's the light bulb moment of aha. And I think we all would have those aha moments if we pause and just build in time in our daily, weekly, whatever regularity to reflect on those things of, as you started off the conversation, what make, what is important to me? You said time with my daughter. Is it in, in talking with my daughter or having something special that those moments are only realized when you stop and think about it. But so many of us in academic medicine are running through life like we're on fire because that's kind of, that's that habituation of busy, 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 busy. So everything comes back to this nice way that you put it earlier of just this vision of intentionality. I love, that's a great example of coaching. Please go on and I will shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> No, the only other thing that came to mind as I just heard you say that too is that yes, it's it's amazing what you will see when you take the time to notice. And you know, some simple examples of that. There's so much there's so much beauty every day that we just walk right by because we're on the way to the next patient, the next OR, etc. And so other exa- other examples of what you can do, like I I had a friend that I only had ever met through email who's also an otolaryngologist. But what we started doing was when I would see something surprising and beautiful, I would take a picture and I would text it to her. And she would do the same thing. And it was just this amazing, beautiful way to be like, look what I took the time to notice today. And it was amazing. And share it with somebody else. And share it with somebody and tell her why I thought it was why I thought it was beautiful. And then, you know, the response isn't always immediate, but she would do the same thing. And then it was like, I not only got to notice more beauty in my life, but I got to see some of the beauty in hers. And it's just been like a wonderful exercise that takes no time. We're all always on our phone anyway, but I think it just expands the things that we're able to see because we're, we're trying to notice. Oh my gosh, you guys, don't you want to go to University of Kansas and hang out with Jennifer Vilwalk? <laughs> oh my gosh, what a beautiful, beautiful I just love that whole, you're reminding me of, I got my AARP magazine in the mail a couple of days ago, and there's some something in there about social media and how, you know, this whole comparison, maybe kind of this is a segue into, you know, your your great wisdom around imposter syndrome, but how everyone is comparing themselves to their insides to people's outsides. And social media is a great way of destroying our egos by seeing all the polished and edited versions of people's lives. I think that started back with Facebook and then people taking pictures of their food and they're like, oh, my life sucks compared to everybody else's. But in the AARP magazine, there's apparently some new apps or things that it's called like real time or something that you agree to be on it. And then randomly throughout the day, it takes a picture of what you're looking at forward and backward. So it's like real life. So that you're not getting these posed, hey, look at me in my perfect world, but rather 
this is me in the hallway in in the emergency room, or this is me at my kids, you know, soccer practice. But it's just kind of real life. And apparently this is growing in popularity because it gives you that inside window into authenticity, you know? And so I, I, I like, I like that reminder of not only that new app or apps apparently, but also your, the beauty and the things that aren't just so obviously beautiful. You're not obviously going and touring the Louvre, but you're looking at ordinary things that we would maybe step over on the street or at the curb and, and seeing those moments. So yeah, once you, once you, you know, riff on this whole uh, next thing with the, the imposter, because I love your message there. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is something that I became interested in, in residency. And at that time, the book lean in, it hadn't just come out, but I think it was becoming very popular at that time. And so it's a topic that's discussed within that book, but you know, for those that are unfamiliar, it's essentially, you know, as the name implies, a pervasive sense of being an imposter. You're not good enough. It's only a matter of time until people figure it out. Obviously, all of your past successes, however impressive, were just due to luck. Um, and you're you're still a fraud at your core. Yeah. And we started, you know, having conversations within my residency cohort because we were noticing that different people would have objectively very similar experiences, particularly in the operating room. And, you know, you do a procedure skin to skin, you're Attending never really needed to help. And some of us would come out of that sort of experience and just be like, nailed it. I'm the best surgeon. Look at me. Versus others, you know, would say, oh, you know, I did do that procedure skin to skin. However, you know, I could have done this part of the dissection faster, you know, and, and here I could have been a little bit more, you know, technically excellent, etc. And, you know, in talking with some of my co-residents, we were like, why is that? Why are some of us having, you know, such different reactions? And then we read Lean In, we learned about imposter syndrome and like all good little nerds, we were like, we must study this. <laughs> so, you know, we sent out some surveys just to figure out, well, what, you know, what, what is, is this experience, you know, isolated to us? Is this something mm-hmm. that's pervasive within um, the medical culture? And one of the interesting, uh-huh. And one of the things that, you know, was striking to me is that one of my attendings came up to me um, after the survey was deployed because we sent it to our attendings as well. And he was like, Jen, do people really feel this way? Because it had a questionnaire, you know, of all the different kind of imposter type, you know, thoughts, you know, and he was like, do people, people really feel this way? And I looked at him and I was like, do people really not (laughs) feel this way? Because we're all our own internal frame of reference. So we just assume, you know, that if you're having all these imposter thoughts, it must be normal and everybody else has them versus if you're on the other side of that coin and you never have these thoughts, you know, you just assume nobody else does either. But come to find out it's very common, you know, more prevalent in women versus men, uh, more prevalent in underrepresented minorities in medicine within the medical context, which makes sense if you can't. It's, if there's nobody around you that looks like you, you know, you can be told till the cows come home that this is a this is an option for you. But at the end of the day, you have to be the trailblazer. And then there's these undercurrents within the conversation of, you know, am I only here because I'm the token, you know, insert aspect of your identity that's not well represented in the field. So there's there's so many of these thoughts constantly swirling, swirling around. And for those of us in academic medicine, you know, we need to be aware that a lot of our students you know, are struggling with these feelings, like the the stereotypical mean surgeon that's just going to ask you questions until you don't know, like if that person already thinks that they're not good enough, 
and that they can't succeed in medicine, yeah, that methodology is going to be very toxic for them. You know, and I think right. it circles back to the overall conversation about wellness um, as well. And how do we teach better in a way that's not going to harm, you know, our students. Right. Right. Such a, um, thank you for sharing that. I, I, it just is always a reminder to me that we need to evolve that. Yes, there are best practices and there are standard ways of doing things that have been, the evidence has, it's been borne out through evidence that this is the way thou shalt do things. And yet it's also a reminder that nothing is static. Things change. People change. Environments change. Cultures change. Reimbursement models change. All these things change. And so it's an opportunity for us as humans to reflect on how we can change and improve and evolve our methodology. So I I really think it's important to push back graciously at that model, as you, you know, you pointed out that model of interrogation that, you know, what is the benefit to that? Like, you know, maybe that worked then, but that's not the model now. And uh, to, to what end, what, what are we trying to achieve there that you're this tough, this tough woman who's really trying to intimidate people. And is that really the best learning way to learn something? Is that the way to inspire curiosity and wonder when you're going to beat someone about the head. So I think it's, to me, it's a reminder that the constant evolution, the general, I always want to say George, and I think it's wrong, Kinsheki or Shinseki, some military guy who said, those who do not, you know, evolve or change will, will suffer the consequences of complete irrelevance. Like we have to, we can't like hold true and fast to some of these, well, this is just the best way to do things when they could be in fact now harmful. So evolution to me and change is where where I I see that story going in my rambling head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the, the the rationale for why we do things can't can no longer forever be because this is how I was taught, or this mm-hmm. is how it was for me, right. or what was me uphill in the snow both ways, yeah. etc. Yeah, no, <laughs> that that doesn't mean that we pass that on to the next generation. Yeah, this this whole, I think it's so important, especially in academic medicine, because I think unlike a lot of other industries, maybe I'm just being ignorant or biased in my my being in academic medicine my whole life, is that when we go through training and all, think of, you know, from a little kid, grade school, middle school, high school, college, medical school, doctoral training, master's degrees, residents, enter, all the, the training, the fellowships, we're always like in a system with other people and there's a curriculum and there's a process and we're marching through the path and the way to do thing with other people. And there's a prescribed protocol. And then we get released into academic medicine and it's like kicked out of the nest. Like goodbye, good luck, have fun, spread your wings and soar. And so many faculty, they're alone. They're isolated. They don't, they don't know how to be on their own. Maybe that creativity, that um, confidence is so easily, I think, easily eroded or shot down because it's such a tough business of being rejected paper after paper, grant after grant application, um, clinical loads, trying to balance and please everybody. And then all of a sudden you're all by yourself. And then we wonder why faculty have you know low levels of satisfaction and engagement. To me, it's, a, it's like an abrupt abrupt shift from a life of prescribed 
training to complete freedom in some regards that has this sense of anomie or nor- normlessness or lawlessness that can really set people feel like I'm self the self doubt. So I see a lot of times that's where that kind of imposter syndrome comes in part because of the isolation that if if we were surrounded by people who were more like i got you no yeah me too yeah of course i feel that way come on you know that would be a little bit more like ah but we don't have those that system is not set up that way right or my off yeah and i think we're not programmed to have those conversations because for so long like the person that you see at the conference that's not the real person. That's the avatar of that person, right? Ooh, love <laughs> like, it. Love it. That's that's me in a suit. That never happens in real life, right? But this is the professional avatar that I think I'm supposed to put out in some of these scenarios. And what does that avatar say when you ask her how she's doing? Great. Great. So happy to be here. That's not true. I'm an introvert. I hate conferences. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, this is this is not my jam. I would rather be in my hotel room watching HGTV. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> exactly. but but I've been trained. I've been trained that that avatar needs to go out there and look the look and say the things. And some of the moments that can be transformative. You know, I remember being at a professional development um, retreat through one of our professional organizations, and you know, a woman that I had you know, interacted with before. She's also um, an otolaryngologist, you know, came and sat at the table and starts the conversation in the traditional way with, oh, how are you doing? And, you know, I, I took a breath. And in that moment, I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to say what is happening in my mind. (laughs) So I told her, I was like, you know, I'm really happy to be here. I think what we're learning is really valuable, but it's really hard for me because it's been you know, it's been a long kind of conference season and I'm really tired and I just miss being at home. I miss my family. Whoa. And she kind of, she kind of like took a pause, right? Cause the, the normal response is great. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> but she, she took a pause and then looked at me and she said, you know what? Me too. And then we actually had a conversation beyond just the awkward pleasantries that normally occur. And so I think, you know, the, the sorts of conversations that we're having today are so important because they need to be more commonplace, you know, and expected, right? We can't just have all of these like fake avatars going around pretending like they've got everything, you know, they've got everything figured out and everything's going great. Sometimes that's the case, but not always and not in every context. Me too. It's it's a different twist on the whole me too culture. Yeah, me too. It's comforting in that sense. Yeah, I'm not alone. We're not alone. Me too. I love you. I love the metaphor, the professional avatar. Yeah, that's so true. And it reminds me of that television commercial now of depression, where they show people with that stick and that kind of happy face and the people are walking around with their happy face stick. But it's a commercial for some antidepressant. And it's like, I have this fake face on but you remove the stick with the happy face and I'm very sad. But so many of us lack the courage because we don't want to bring them down and good. Yeah. Thumbs up. All good. How are you? And go on. Um, but that takes courage and gosh, what happens? Right. She paused and wouldn't that be a wonderful opening? Like you said, to transform the way of being with other people, that you're authentic, that you're real. You're not doing a drive by greeting. All good. No, not, it's not so much all good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think in that way too, you know, going back to treating things with curiosity, you know, if let's say, for example, that person was just like, oh, all right, that's kind of a weird response. <laughs> like, 
Okay, cool. What well, it's still a low risk interaction for me. Yeah. I only see this person at like conferences. Yeah. So if now they think I'm some sort of like psychologically deranged weirdo, that's fine. I'm not going to see them <laughs> for another year. Right. Yeah. But the best, the best case scenario there is that, oh, now I found someone that I know has these same feelings and is open to having these sorts of real interactions. And I think the value that is gained from that far outweighs any perceived risk of being like the weirdo. Jennifer, risk and reward, risk and reward. What were to happen if as physicians, you were to walk into that patient encounter and also be authentic? Like I'm also a human too. How would that change patient, family, practitioner relationships? How would that change us when we walk into the lab and say, no, I'm going through a really tough time now. Um, how would that change our authentic relations with our, our bosses, with our, our colleagues, our, our trainees? I mean, it's just so important, a reminder. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Of uh, Even if not for you, me, a person, but the contribution that of loving others enough to say, no, I'm going to be real with you. And opening up possibilities. And even like you said, if she thinks person thinks you're a weirdo or I'm a like superficial cheerleader and I'm just always up, 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 maybe at that moment you won't get the connection that you had hoped. But I guarantee you that seed has been planted and maybe not now, but maybe next time it's that rem- that's that recollection of, Oh, that's the one who, Oh, I, I have some connection something in my my body my soul my spirit recognizes that person as being the one who has the courage to say yeah me too or share something real so yeah yeah and i would just add to that it gives you an opportunity to get out of that physician mindset of whatever people bring to me is a problem i need to fix oh sometimes what we we don't fix anything but we we give our we give our presence which can be just as therapeutic Ooh, ooh, I love that. I love that. My that a daily. Oh, where's my daily? I I, I took, think I put it somewhere else, but that was a you know, reminder to me. Like, don't try to fix people. You can't. Don't try to heal people's pain. You can't. Just be there with them. The presence of being. And earlier on, you said, you know, we're always in this, you know, doing, doing, doing. And when I had my surgery, I, you know, I was afraid of being dinged is not doing anything productive because I have, was having the surgery and we're always fixated on the doing, 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 forgetting that we're human beings and not mm-hmm. human doings. And just being is sometimes enough that knowing that when someone is grieving or having trouble, you don't have to do anything necessarily. You can just be with them yeah. and be with ourselves too, right? Being, yeah. just being. Yeah. Cause the reality yeah. is sometimes, sometimes there's nothing to be done. Nothing you do is going to make it better. Nothing you do, you know, is going to make someone else's grief go away. But you can, what you can do is just be there. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Vilwak. Woo, this is so powerful. You have to um, go to TED Talk and see the Black Hole but with Dr. Jennifer Vilwak, B-I-L-L-W-O-C-K. She's doing coaching. So wouldn't you love to have her as a coach? You can hit her up at her email address is jvilwak. J B I L L W O C K at K U M C stands for Kansas University Medical Center.edu. You'll find all that information on the facultyfactory.org website. You'll have a nice profile. You'll see her picture. Definitely check her out. She's amazing. 
And I'll, I guess I'll leave the final word to you, Jennifer. Again, thank you so much. You are so inspirational. I just love everything about you. Oh, thank you so much. I right back at you, Kim. And yeah, my final word would just be, you know, don't be stay curious. Don't be afraid to have these conversations. Find the people that want to have them too. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.